this is a new Sunday school quarter, which it probably won't come out to being exactly a quarter. Things got a little shifted coming into the summer schedule here. Um, and so this is a new adult Sunday school that's happening kind of for the rest of the duration of the summer. Um, this class was Stephen Baker's idea, um, and then he asked me to teach the very first week of it. So you have to bear with me. Um, I didn't know this was coming. Um, I have no, it wasn't like he just told me yesterday. He told me a couple weeks ago, but um, this, this wasn't my idea, okay? Um, so this is a class that it has the really brilliant title, What Do You Want to Know? Um, and it really is just a class. Uh, a couple of emails have gone out uh, through the email, the church email list. Um, hopefully you've seen that. It's a class where you, it, you have an opportunity to ask questions that are burning in your mind. Um, they can be theological questions. They could be practical questions of how we live obediently to God's will. Um, really, anything is on the table. Um, and uh, some questions have come in. It's still open for that. Feel free to email the church office if you have questions for this class. We, we want to know what you want to know um, and do our best as pastors and elders uh, to help you understand God's Word and the world we live in. So I'm going to teach this week. Stephen Baker's going to be doing some teaching. I think Ben Burlingham is also on the schedule to uh, field a couple of the questions. So uh, let's go ahead and open in prayer this morning. Father, we thank you for being a God who reveals yourself to us. Um, we thank you for being patient with us and our slow understanding and our hardness of heart. Would you please soften our hearts to your word and to your will um, so that we might understand your ways and your truth and that we might walk in obedience uh, to the law of the kingdom of your son. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So this first week, um, we're going to be dealing with this question. Uh-oh, I turned it off. There we go. Yes. Question number one is, what does it mean to fear God? Um, this is a question you've maybe run into. I've had recent conversations with uh, with Christians, even with other church leaders, pastors of other churches about this question of what does it actually mean to fear God? Um, it's something that Christians will argue about and debate about. Are we supposed to fear God? And if so, what does that actually mean that we're supposed to fear God? Um, so I want to open up for you this morning um, just simply what Scripture teaches us about the fear of the Lord, which is something that comes up on nearly every page of Scripture, is the fear of the Lord, that we are to fear God. And so this question, what does it mean to fear God? Um, I did an extensive Greek and Hebrew word study on this, okay? And you guys should be really grateful that you have a pastor like me who has theological training who can come and tell you the answer to this question. Are you ready? What does it mean to fear God? To fear God means to fear Him. <laughs> this is true. Um, this is, Scripture says what it means. 
Um, and this is one reality of Scripture that actually is quite simple. There are some things that are harder to understand in Scripture. This actually isn't one of them. Uh, this is clear from the beginning of Scripture all the way through to the end, um, is that we really are supposed to fear God. Um, now, it is worth talking about what that means, which is what we'll be doing this morning, but a lot of people try to explain away this word fear, which is why I did this, and say, well, it doesn't really mean fear like you think of fear. It means reverence and awe, which is true. We are supposed to have reverence and awe for God, but the word that Scripture actually uses for fear is fear. It can also be translated in the Hebrew and the Greek into the words terror, and we see that in Scripture, dread, being frightened, afraid in the presence of God. And so we really are supposed to fear God. Um, This is a quote from John Bunyan, which is really helpful and combines these realities. John Bunyan uh, was a pastor back in the 1600s, wrote Pilgrim's Progress, and he said, he says, his people, meaning God's people know him and have his dread upon them by virtue whereof there is begot and maintained in them that godly awe and reverence of his majesty, which is agreeable to their profession of him. Uh, There's a book that recently came out, well, you know, 400 years ago, but uh, was reprinted recently, uh, just called The Fear of God. It's by John Bunyan. Um, it's in a very helpful series of books. If you've never heard of this, uh, there's a publisher called Banner of Truth, which puts out these things called Puritan paperbacks. Um, and they're really short books by men, our fathers in the faith, uh, who write on topics like this in a way that nobody today writes about them. Um, and this is a helpful book. It just, they just reprinted it last year. Um, and that quote comes from that. And I want to, just to lead things off, look at one verse from the Psalms. It gives us an idea that the fear of God, it, does, it is reverence, it is awe, it is standing in awe of God's majesty. But there's a fearful reality that goes along with it. Look at this, Psalm 119, 120 says, My flesh trembles for fear of you, and I am afraid of your judgments. This is a man of God, this is King David writing, God's chosen, his anointed, saying in the presence of God, my flesh trembles for fear of you. When, when I come, when the man of God comes into the presence of his Lord, it's a fearful thing. One of the things I do want to point out just on the front end is that fear of God is not just for the Old Testament. This is something that people will assert is that the fear of God is just something that was for the Old Testament. You know, before the gospel came along, before uh, Jesus came along, before God started to love the world, uh, you know, fear was something that the Old Testament people were supposed to do. But the fear of God is a theme that continues from the Old Testament into the New. So here are are the actual Greek words which you don't need a PhD to understand what these mean. There's two main uh, New Testament Greek words that we translate as fear. One is phobos. Do you recognize that word? Where, where, do we have any words? Phobia, yeah, fear. It comes from that same Greek word for fear. The verb form of that same word, word is the same thing, phobeo. Um, there's two verses there. That the, the people of God in Acts were going on in the fear of the Lord as they received the Holy Spirit. 
in Acts 10 says, In every nation, the man who fears him, who fears God, and does what is right is welcome to him. Anyone who fears God is welcome to him, is what Scripture teaches us. I just want to run through some more verses that show that this is not just an Old Testament reality, that we have the same God who is to be feared now in the New Covenant as was feared in the Old Covenant. Matthew 28 says, And they left the tomb quickly with fear and great joy and ran to report it to his disciples. These realities are intermingled in Scripture, fear before God and great joy. This was their reaction after the resurrection. They ran with fear and great joy together. Mark 5, the woman, this is the woman who touched Jesus' clothes, but the woman, fearing and trembling, aware of what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. This woman was gripped with fear when Jesus you know, called her out for having touched him. He said, who touched me? And it was a fear that drove her not away from her Lord, but a fear that caused her to come with trembling to him, knowing that he was the one who had the power to heal her. He was to be feared and he was to be trusted. And those two realities go hand in hand when we're talking about the one true God. Acts 5 says, and as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. This is when Ananias had lied to the Holy Spirit about his gift to the church. And when he lied to the Holy Spirit, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came over all who heard of it. The church was gripped with fear as they saw God's judgment carried out even within the walls of the church. And it was a proper thing for God's people to fear. 2 Corinthians says, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. This is the life of a Christian, is pursuing holiness in the fear of God. A couple more here. Ephesians 5, be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. And so even more specifically, we're to walk in the fear of Christ and of his lordship and authority over us. Philippians 2, this should be a familiar one. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. 1 Timothy 5 says, Those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. One of the characteristics of a Christian is that we are fearful of sinning in the sense that we don't even want to come anywhere near sinning against our God and our Lord. I think there's two more. Here we go. Hebrews 10, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And finally, in Revelation, this is just a sampling, by the way. Finally, in Revelation, a summing up of the eternal gospel in Revelation, there's an angel flying in mid-heaven who says this, Fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and springs of waters. So let me ask this question. It's clear in Scripture that God is to be feared. There should be no question about that. Why is it that God is to be feared? I just want to list a few things. One is simply because of His power. I don't know why, but the example, the illustration I think of with this is, I, the trains fascinate me. You know, if you're anywhere within like a half mile of a freight train, 
going by, or if you're sitting at the crossing in your car, you can just feel the ground shaking, right? When there's a train going by. Um, and I, you just think about the sheer power of that train moving. Even a train moving at two miles per hour would just crush anything in its path, right? It's just an unstoppable force. And I, when I see trains, I get excited, right? And my boys get excited too. Little kids get excited. I feel a little bit of kidness when you see a train, right? And it's just rumbling by and you think there is nothing that can stop that thing. Isn't that awesome and scary, right? Trains are scary and they're amazing. And I want, I want to touch them and I want to get on them, right? <laughs> because of their sheer power, And this is a reality about who God is. I mean, he made the heavens. He made the ground that we're standing on. God can hold up his hand and stop that train in an instant, right? That's scary and awesome. And we should want to know that God who has that power. Related to God's power, directly related is his authority, is his ability to command the world. Now, sadly, you know, in Scripture, I, actually I was reading uh, Bunyan on the fear of God, and one of the things he talks about is the fear of God being like the fear of a king, that, that a subject in the presence of his king is fearful. We don't, we don't really have that. Uh, we don't have kings now. We despise kings, in fact. The last king we had was King George III, and he wasn't to be feared, right? Um, and it's a little difficult for us to relate to this. Um, I think we, we have some similarities to maybe things like fearing, maybe the closest we come is fearing the police. Um, when you come in contact with a police officer, if you get pulled over or something, a lot of us, you know, we get all fearful. Um, or thinking about judges, um, in our society who have the authority to declare guilty, or to declare not guilty. There is a fear that we want to please those in authority who have the power of arresting us um, or of indicting us for a crime. And there are proper authorities to fear in our life. Um, And this fear of of a proper authority, I think, is characterized by an instinctive willingness to do the will of the one feared. Um, I think this is the case with most of us. Some of us have rebellious hearts, and if we get pulled over by a police officer, we go, mm, you know, I'm going to do whatever I can. To. But most of us, when the police officer comes up, we're going to be like, you know, yeah, okay, a license? Okay, let me find it. You know, at least uh, this is how I am. <laughs> I'd never get pulled over, though. So, um, No, we, yeah, we have a fear, and it's a good and right fear of authority, and because he's carrying a gun, right? And he's able to enforce his authority that we rightly respond with a fear and a coming into line. And this is the kind of fear that we should have when we come into the presence of God. Because not only is he, hi, welcome. (laughs) Not only is he, uh, does he have authority, but his authority is perfect. He always makes the right judgments. He knows who is innocent. He knows who is guilty. And he is able to enforce his authority with perfect execution. And so if any earthly authority is to be feared, God all the more. 
God is the king of kings. He is the commander of kings. The kings of the world go forth to do God's will by his command. He is to be feared above all authorities. Um, Also directly related to his authority is his judgment. He doesn't just have authority to command, but he has judgment in his hand. I don't know if I have another slide. Okay. Uh, And judgment so holds a couple of realities together. One that we usually think of when we think of judgment is wrath against wickedness, that it's proper for a king to execute judgment against wickedness in his land. God is king over the entire earth, and it is proper and good for him to execute his judgment, his wrath on the wicked, and he promises that he will do that. But along with wickedness, or wrath against wickedness, um, is the reality that God holds in his hand the power of mercy and forgiveness. And these two realities of God's mercy and compassion and God's wrath against wickedness in Scripture so often come, as Tim would say, cheek by jowl. Uh, side by side, intertwined in Scripture. So one example of this is Exodus 34, which says this is when God is revealing himself to, directly to Moses. And this is God defining and identifying himself as the true God. He says, then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed. This is what God says about himself. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship." Right? This, this God, the true God, holds both of these things in his hands. Because he has judgment in his hand, he carries punishment on the wicked and he carries forgiveness. God is the one who has the storehouse of all forgiveness in his hand because he is the judge. And this, what makes the true God, our God, our Father, so wonderful is that he is not simply to be feared. He is also to be trusted because he is full of love and grace and compassion. This is not true of the idols of the world. This is not true of Allah, the Muslim God. Allah is an idol which is simply to be feared. He is not a God of compassion. Allah is a harsh taskmaster that demands your perfection. God, our Father, is not that way. Psalm 103.13 says, Just as a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he himself knows our frame. He is mindful that we are but dust. This is the true God who is perfectly just who will not leave the guilty unpunished, and yet he is full of mercy and compassion. 
And so his forgiveness is actually directly pointed to as one of the reasons that God is to be feared in Scripture. Uh, Psalm one, oh, sorry, Psalm one thirty says, "If you, Lord, should mark or if you should count our sins, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared." Psalm 130 actually gives God's forgiveness as a reason for us fearing him. Why would we fear him? Because he forgives. Well, it's because God is the one who holds forgiveness in his hand. He is the judge. He is the one who declares guilty and innocent. He is the one to be feared because he is the only one who really can forgive sins. With you, there is forgiveness so that you may be feared. And there are two traps that we can fall into very easily um, when we're talking about God's love and God's judgment. One, I think, is more common in the American church today, which is to say, well, God is love, therefore, we're not supposed to fear him. I think this is very common, is that people will talk a lot about God's love. You know, he's, he's love. No, we're not supposed to fear God. He's not scary. He's your friend. Um, and so, he's not to be feared. I think that's a very common error that we can easily fall into. But there's another error that we can fall into, which I think is typically today an overreaction to that, which is to say, hey, stop talking about how God is love. You know? God, God isn't love. He's wrath, and he's to be feared. You talk too much about God being love, right? That's, that's a tendency of some of us to overreact and say, you know, you're not supposed to talk about God as love that much. Well, that, that's not the solution to the problem. God really is love. And the solution, we're not trying to like find this balance where we like talk a little bit more about God's love, you know, a little bit more than we talk about God's judgment. Oh, oh people have been talking about love too much. Let's stop talking about love and let's talk about God's judgment. That's not what we're supposed to do. God's character is fixed, and we are to love everything about who he is. And this is one of the things that I think the Puritans do a great job of, if you go back and read, is that what they do is they take God's wrath, God's judgment, his hatred of sin, and they, ramp, they like ratchet it up to level 10, and then they take God's love, and they ratchet it up to level 10, and they take both of them, and they shove them in your face. So that you know, whoa, God is full of wrath against sin and hatred on the wicked. And God is a God who is full of love and compassion and mercy and grace. And both of those things actually go together and magnify each other. We're never to just like take a part of who God is and think that we need to emphasize that to the detriment of another part of who God is. But God is both full of righteous judgment and righteous mercy and compassion. And these two realities, it seems like a contradiction, right? How, how can God be full of wrath and full of compassion? It doesn't seem to make sense. Well, it only makes sense because of one thing. If you've got wrath, you've got compassion. It only makes sense in the cross of Jesus Christ. Because that is the place where God demonstrates the intensity and fullness of his wrath against sin in pouring out his judgment on sin and pouring out his compassion and mercy on what he has made by saving his people through Jesus Christ. It's only in Christ that both God's wrath and his compassion come together and make sense. 
And that is what the cross is, is it's a picture to us of the fearfulness of sin and of God's judgment on sin and a picture of the wonder of God's mercy toward us in Christ Jesus. It is important to talk about two kinds of fear uh, in Scripture. Um, So, one of the ways that we see this is there's a passage that fascinates me in Exodus 20. This is right after God has delivered the Ten Commandments. He says this, or Moses says this to the people after they receive the Ten Commandments. He says, Do not be afraid, for God has come in order to test you, in order that the fear of Him may remain with you, that you may not sin. Do not be afraid. God has come to test you, so that the fear of Him may remain with you. Both of these things are true, and part of this is because there are two kinds of fear that we see in Scripture, and I think the clearest place these are set against each other is in um, Romans 8, which says, for all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified with him. So we see here this reality of the fear of a slave who just lives in fear of punishment, of being caught, versus the fear of a child who loves his father, who respects his father, and who wants to please his father. J.C. Ryle, oh, sorry. I can't remember what I actually put in the slideshow or not. Here we go. Look at this. The fear of a slave and the fear of a child. Um, J.C. Ryle, okay, sorry. (laughs) Uh, J.C. Ryle says this. He says, a holy man will follow after the fear of God. I do not mean the fear of a slave who only works because he is afraid of punishment and would be idle or lazy if he did not dread discovery. I mean rather the fear of a child who wishes to live and move as if he was always before his father's face because he loves him. What a noble example Nehemiah gives us of this. When he became governor at Jerusalem, he might have been chargeable to the Jews and required required money of them for his support. So Nehemiah came and was appointed as the governor of the province of Judah. And the governors who had come before him had exacted these heavy taxes from the people so that they could live luxuriously. But Nehemiah refused to do this. He could have done that just like the previous governors, but this is what Nehemiah says. He says, I did not do that because of the fear of God. Nehemiah was a man in authority And he could have taken advantage of the people under his authority, but because he feared God, because he knew he was under God's authority, that kept him from the sins of his predecessors. And this is one of the main things in Scripture that teaches us, as Christians, one of the functions of the fear of God in our life is that it keeps us from sin. This comes up over and over and over again in the book of Proverbs, um, in the book of Hebrews, Fear God that you might not sin. Um, One of the things that's going on here that we see uh, in Nehemiah's life um, and in many, the lives of many men in Scripture, 
is that you can only fear in one direction. Often, the fear of God is set against other fears that we have in this life. It might be fear of circumstances. It might be fear of storms. It might be fear of man and what other people think of you. The important thing to realize about the fear of God is that the fear of God casts out all other fears. When we fear God, we don't need to fear the storm. When you fear God, you don't need to fear what other people think about you. When you have a father that you know loves you and takes care of you, and that is actually worth obeying and honoring his will, you don't have to worry about what other people think. Um, Jesus teaches us this reality um, in Matthew chapter 10. He says, do not fear the one who can just destroy the body, but fear the one rather who has the power to destroy both body and soul in hell. Jesus sets the fear of man over and against the fear of God and says, you're going to fear one or the other. You're going to live in subjection to man or to God. You don't, you, there's no middle neutral way where you don't get to fear somebody. You're going to be living in fear of something or someone. And your choice is, are you going to fear the things of this world? Are you going to fear this person? Are you going to fear this circumstance? Are you going to fear sickness? Are you going to fear death? Or are you going to fear God and walk in freedom from those other fears? Um, what you fear, another way of putting this is that what you fear is your God. This is part of what it means to have a God and to worship something is to fear it. Um, we see this in the reality that there are a couple of places in the Old Testament that God is referred to as the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac. This is one of the way that God is referred to is he is the fear of Isaac. And what does that mean? Well, it simply means that God was Isaac's God. He put himself in subjection to this God as opposed to the surrounding peoples who their fear was other gods and false gods and idols, and they lived in fear of the work of their own hands, whereas Isaac feared this God. In this God, Jehovah, was the fear of Isaac. Thomas Watson, I don't think I, I didn't include this one. Thomas Watson says, to have God, to be a God to us, is to fear him. This fearing God is one to have him always in our eye, he who fears God imagines that whatever he is doing, God looks on and as a judge weighs all his actions. To fear God is to have such a holy awe of God upon our hearts that we dare not sin. Bid me sin and you bid me drink poison. And then he quotes this church father named Anselm who says, if hell were on one side and sin on the other, I would rather leap into hell than willingly sin against my God. He who fears God will not sin, though it be ever so secret. Suppose you should curse a deaf man, he could not hear you. Or you were to lay a block in a blind man's way and cause him to fall, he could not see you do it. But the fear of God will make you forsake sins, which can neither be heard nor seen by men. The fear of God destroys the fear of man. 
Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego feared God, therefore they feared not the king's wrath. The greater noise drowns the less. The noise of thunder drowns the noise of a river. So when the fear of God is supreme in the soul, it drowns all other carnal or earthly or fleshly fear. It makes God to be a God to us when we have a holy filial. Anybody know what filial means? Yeah, family, father, son, the filial fear of him. You're going to fear something. Fear God. Fear the one that you can trust, who actually has power to save. Which leads to the great benefits which flow from fearing God. I want to read, especially this is a theme in the book of Psalms that comes up over and over again. Psalm 115 says, You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He, the Lord, is their help and their shield. This is a promise of God to those who fear him. Those who fear him have the promise that he will be their help and their shield and their protection. Psalm 128, I recently got to visit someone who had a baby in the hospital, and as I was walking into the hospital, I was flipping through thinking, okay, I need to find a psalm that's about having children um, and the blessing of children. I thought, oh, Psalm 20, 128 is a great psalm about the blessing of children. Well, I found out that's not actually what Psalm 128 is about. It is, but it's really about the fear of the Lord. Look at this. Psalm 128 says, how blessed is everyone who fears the Lord, who walks in his ways. When you shall eat of the fruit of your hands, you will be happy and it will be well with you. Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house your children like olive plants around your table. Behold, for thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. This passage is about the blessings on those who fear the Lord. That's the important part of this psalm is that God blesses those who fear him with great gifts and sweet blessings. Psalm 25 says, The secret of the Lord is for those who fear him and he will make them know his covenant. God brings those close to him who fear him, reveals his secrets to them, and makes them partakers in his covenant. So one last question here. Uh, Just in terms of practical things, how do you get the fear of God? You know, it's one thing to talk about the fear of God and that we're supposed to do it, but what are some things that lead us into fearing God? Some very simple things, sitting under the preaching of God's Word um, and listening to God's Word humbly. Um, I think the fear of God is one thing that is missing in a lot of preaching today is that a lot of preachers, I think, have fallen into the trap of thinking that good preaching of the gospel is preaching that has no aspect of fear in it. Um, That actually, if I'm really going to preach the gospel, what I need to do is convince people that they're not supposed to fear God, and then they'll be ready to receive the gospel. But this is not true. Good preaching brings to your mind the fear of God, that He is to be feared, and it brings to your heart salvation in Christ Jesus. And you need to sit under the preaching, the authoritative preaching of God's Word to grow in your fear of God. 
Um, another very practical thing is go to funerals. I tell people this a lot. Um, that we, we live in a culture that's very sophisticated and clever about hiding death um, and pretending like death doesn't really happen. And, we, and when it does happen, we sort of do it in a back corner where no one can see it. Um, but one of the most beneficial things you can do for your soul and the souls for your, of your children, I think, is to bring them into contact with death when God gives opportunity. And one of the things you can do is attend the funerals of those who have gone on. And feel the taste of death, the bitter taste of death. Uh, go to church. You're all here. Um, but this is, this is something we have to be reminded. And it, I, I said sit under preaching. What I was thinking when I said go to church is actually one of the things that should increase the fear of God in our hearts is to come into the presence of God's people gathered together, worshiping him as a king. Uh, when the people of God gather together and raise their voices to the praise of the creator of the universe and we hear it, that should make us realize God's majesty and greatness. And this is one of the ways that God magnifies his majesty in the earth is through the praises of his people. And it's hard to be in the presence of God's people and hear them shouting to God and singing praises to him without your own heart being instructed in the fear of God. And so this is essential um, that you actually be in the midst of God's people who are worshiping him and singing praises to their king. Uh, the last one is pray. Many of us are experts at avoiding the fear of God because we avoid ever subjecting our will to his will. We just do what we're going to do, what we think is right. We never take our burdens. We never take our needs. We never take our questions to the Lord. We just are on our own way and aren't going to pray unless you force me to. But the work of prayer is bringing our will to God to be subjected to his will and to seek out what he wants us to do and to seek to be in unity with God. And prayer is one of those things that requires the fear of God to do, but it also nurtures the fear of God in your heart to humble yourself. And it does take humbling yourself to go to God in prayer. Um, I, just one practical thing I would suggest in your, if you don't in your own private prayer that you occasionally, that you do actually kneel before God. Um, we do that in worship here and a lot of people think it's strange, but with our bodies we instruct our hearts that we are going before a king um, and we ought to be humble and fearful as we go into God's presence. Every single example of prayer in scripture <laughs> of men, godly men going to God is a a fearful experience. Um, Psalm 86.11, this will be the last thing. Psalm 86.11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. We need to go to God to help us to bring our heart out of double-mindedness and uh, into a united, singular love and fear of God and of his name. And this happens through prayer. 
It doesn't happen in an instant. It happens as, as we cultivate the habit of prayer and going to God humbly. And so you must pray and make a habit of praying to God. And praying can be difficult. Sometimes it feels like wrestling with God, like Jacob did. Um, but Jacob came out of his wrestling match with God fearing God, right? Um, and prayer should have that effect on us as well as we have the faith to go to him humbly and wrestle with God we will come out fearing him rightly and loving him more. All right, let's be done. Hey, any questions? I want to open, open that up. We don't have really any time, but any burning questions in your mind? We do have, we have one minute. This is the what do you want to know class. Um, guess you don't want to know anything. <laughs> Thanks, Flo. Thanks. All right. Well, let's pray together. Father, we pray that you would please unite our hearts to fear your name. We pray that you would do that work and worship this morning as we sing your praises. Help us not to sing with empty hearts or hard hearts, but would you please draw our hearts into your presence that we might tremble and work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Help us not to be flippant about your worship and about your will and your word, but help us to honor you and give you the honor that is due your name. Would you please speak the comfort of your Holy Spirit into our hearts this morning as well, and help us know what it is to be your sons and your children, whom you love and who are filled with a desire to do your will. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.